Thank you so much. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, God has done what? Perfected praise. So it's wonderful to hear uh, young people like this uh, worshiping God through music and, and enhancing our service here. We will be hearing from the Von Trapp family in a little while. Actually, they're called the Veek family. This is Cecil's brother's family, so we will be hearing from them. They're quite, quite musical. Just uh, I say that to remind myself that um, not to do the benediction after the sermon, but to wait on them and let them do their music first. Well, we take a Bible. We're going through the book of Acts again. And I don't know about if you're getting bored, but I just feel I'm getting started. I've learned so much by studying this in a systematic way. And today we're in Acts chapter 24. So open your Bible to the fifth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the fifth book in the New Testament. And today we're going to see Paul on trial. It's not his first trial. He actually goes through five trials. So this is quite a solemn time, I think, in his, in his life and many lessons for us in this material. Let's bow our heads as we open God's Word. Gracious God, we, we thank you for your holy Word. People have given their lives to, to get it into our hands. And I pray, Lord, that we will uh, look on it as a sacred book something that can connect us with you in a very powerful way. As we open your word this morning, Lord, we invite the presence of your holy angels, your Holy Spirit to be with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 24, if you look at the end of chapter 23, you will see there that Paul is placed, is in Caesarea, he's going to be there for a number of years, and he's placed at the end of 23 in Herod's palace. Those of you that were here last week or have read chapter 23 know that this Jewish crowd were trying to tear him to pieces. So we talked about Jewish, very strong, almost satanic Jewish opposition to Paul. On the other hand, we also talked about the response of the Romans where they would rescue him. Now we're seeing him today being uh, officially brought into court to answer the charges that are brought against him. I want to throw something in right at the beginning. As I thought and thought and thought about this passage, I want you to think of it in terms of the great controversy. This is, a, this is a special contribution, I think, of, of the Ellen White ministry. Um, those of you that have studied the book, The Great Controversy, or understand the concept of this conflict between good and evil, between God, Christ, and Satan, understand a little bit. And what we're seeing in, in, in a microcosmic way, so to speak, in this trial 2,000 years ago is happening on a global, even universal scale. Also think of yourself as possibly one day being accused of things which you are not guilty of because you believe in the seventh-day Sabbath or whatever, 
and having to give your defense. How would you, how would I do in those circumstances? So yes, Paul is on trial. Remember who the book is written to. O Theophilus. See it at the beginning of Luke. You see it, I believe, at the beginning of Acts. O Theophilus. Christianity is on trial 2,000 years ago. And if it can be shown that Christianity is an aberration, it's not a true flowering of Judaism, which of course has been officially sanctioned, sanctioned by the Roman Empire, but is some offshoot cultish set-like group, then it's a threat to Rome. So all also bear those, those thoughts in mind as we work our way through Acts chapter 24. So our scripture says, five days later, the high priest Ananias, we met Ananias earlier, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. The governor is called Felix. Felix is married to a lady called Drusilla. We will hear about them in another context a little bit later. Felix does not have the Jewish background. Drusilla does. So Paul is being accused. He's being charged. As far as the Jews are concerned, he is a rascal. He is a heretic. And they just can't wait to get rid of this man. That's the bottom line. Tertullus is like a lawyer, somebody who understands the Roman system, knows the best way to get into the mind and the heart of somebody like Felix. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. That's probably not a Jew that believed that. It's flattery. It's trying to get on his good side. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to worry you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man, Paul, to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. And so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation. Now I would assume that these Jews are all Sadducees. Because we concluded last week that because Paul believed in the resurrection of the dead, the Pharisees supported him. If you remember last week, chapter 23, and the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead, why not? Why not? Because they only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy do not tell you very much about the resurrection of the dead. You have to read the rest of the Bible to catch that. And actually, there are not a lot of very clear text in the Old Testament on the resurrection of the dead. It's there, but it doesn't, it's not flowering until Christ is raised from the dead. And then, of course, in the New Testament, it is a huge, major theme. The resurrection of the dead, the wicked, the righteous. Is that what we believe is Seventh-day Adventist? Yes, it is. And that's what Paul and the Pharisees believed, but not the Sadducees. So notice the accusations here. I find three of them. In verse 5, this man is a troublemaker because he stirs up riots amongst the Jews. No Roman official would tolerate that. If there was an insurrection of the Jews, they would find a way of putting it down as quickly as they could. In fact, when we get near the end of the chapter, we see that Felix is replaced by a man called Festus. And the reason he's replaced is because he was too cruel in putting down a Jewish rebellion. So was Paul, those of you who know Paul, was, was he uh, guilty of insurrection? No. And he will give his defense and show why he's not guilty of that. So here, troublemakers stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Plus, he is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Now, this is more important than appears on the surface. It's very important that at some point in your Christian life, you come to terms with Judaism. It's very important. The New Testament, the whole of the New Testament, it seems to me, pretty much revolves around this issue between Jew and Gentile. So what Paul is saying, and which is what I believe, is that Christianity is the maturing, the flowering of Judaism. It is not an offshoot. The Old Testament prophesied of Christ. Christ was a Jew. He fulfilled Scripture, we believe, down to the letter, and Paul will, will mention that. So this is not an offshoot. If it is an offshoot, as I mentioned a moment ago, then you're on the wrong side of the Romans, and you don't want to do that. And even tried to desecrate the temple. So there's the third accusation that Paul desecrated the temple. They don't say how he desecrated you remember Paul was ready for his haircut? Anyone remember that? If I say it that way, you're going to remember it. It's unusual. Here's this Jewish Christian leader who's following Jewish practices such as maybe fasting, sacrificing animals, cutting the hair, burning, having the hair burnt, on the altar. So he was ready that he was ready for that. That was the seventh day of this vow, this oath that these men had taken. We studied that was it last week. And then these Asian Jews, not the Jews from Jerusalem, but the ones from places like Ephesus saw him 
and pounced on him and simply assumed that Paul was desecrating the temple, perhaps by bringing in some uh, person who was ceremonially unclean, some, maybe some Gentile who had no business being there in the first place. So temple defilement. Three accusations, insurrection, heresy, temple defilement. Now, let's go to verse 10 and see very quickly. I'm going to go fairly quickly through this because I want to spend my time on something else. Paul's defense, verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied. And as we go through these verses, notice that he defends himself from the specific charges that were leveled against him. I know for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accus accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up the crowd in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. So here he's mentioning both temple and uh, stirring up the crowd together. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. That's an important statement. Can you back up your charges? Anybody can accuse anybody of anything, right? But can you back that up? Where is the evidence? And Paul is saying it's just not there. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers, so his biblical Judaism, as a follower of the way, another term for Christianity, which they call, not Paul, call, but they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. That's the Old Testament. Sometimes they would call it the law and the prophets. Sometimes the law, the prophets, and the writings. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So maybe there were some Pharisees there. Maybe it wasn't just Jewish Sadducees. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean, so there was no temple defilement. When they found me in the temple courts doing this, there was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance no insurrection. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia. Remember Paul had ministered how many years in Ephesus? One, two, or three. Three years who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin unless it was this one thing that I shouted as I stood in their presence concerning the resurrection of the dead. And of course, when Paul raised his voice, as we saw last week, he divided this Jewish group. Pharisees believed in it. Sadducees not. Pharisees said, hey, this maybe is not a bad guy. Sadducees, he's a rascal. Let's get rid of him. He's a heretic concerning the resurrection of the dead, that I am on trial before you today. Okay, what is Felix supposed to think here? 
Do you remember the other Roman, Lysias, whoever, we, who we studied last week? He couldn't figure out, what's this Paul done that's so bad? Now, Felix, it's been put on Felix's shoulders to try and figure that out, and he's really not going to be any wiser. He's probably thinking, the guy's not guilty. We should let him go. But any of you who, who know about politics know it doesn't quite turn out that way, sometimes not even in, in church circles. See, to do what is right because it is right is a very rare thing. If Felix lets Paul go, he crosses the Jews here. That may be not the smartest thing to do. According to Roman law, it's the right thing to do. But is he going to do that? Well, in verse 22, it says, Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings, and he says, when Lysias, the commander, comes, I will decide your case. Well, what if Lysias never comes? So he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under God to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Well, it would be very tempting at this point to really get into the mind of Paul. Because he's had this crowd that's about to tear him to pieces. He has this energy level, which is like the energizer bunny 10 times over, and he's in prison. Yes, he has a measure of freedom. His friends can minister to him. He might even be able to share the gospel to some extent, give people Bible studies or whatever, but it would be very, very hard for Paul to see meaning and purpose in these tragic circumstances and yet remember what we've said before. God's purposes are being worked out in the life of Paul, whether he understands it or not. Usually, it's pretty rare that individuals who are going through troublous times can really see the hand of God. That's rare, don't you think, in your own life? Hasn't that been that way? Why did this happen to me? Why did that happen? Well, God has a purpose. If you're trusting and following Him, He knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end in your life. Do you believe that? I don't believe in accidents for Christians. I believe in providence. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that I'm in the palm of His hands. If you don't like Jesus' hand, well, you're in the Father's hands as well. Two hands. Can't be bad, huh? Do you like that sense of security? It's important to have a sense of security, that God is for you and not against you. You're trusting in Jesus, and He sees you in Jesus. Well, I'm not so sure that Paul would be able to figure out all the ways and the means of God. God is going to get this man to Rome. No Jewish crowd can tear him to pieces if God does not allow it. But of course, Paul, who so wants to go to Rome, is really never dreaming that he's going to end up there as a prisoner. Now I want to focus in on something that I think is a little bit more personal. We've talked about the general 
trial, these, these accusations. We've seen a little bit about Paul's defense. Now we're going to go into very personal stuff from verse 24 to the end. Several days later, Felix came with his wife. What's her name? Drusilla. Drusilla, gentlemen, I'm just talking to the men now. Ladies, just, just close your ears. So all the, all the females in the room, just close your ears. And I'm just talking to the men, right? I heard a lady say yes, so you're supposed to close your ears. Drusilla was supposed to be drop-dead gorgeous. Really, really beautiful. Fifteen years of age, married. Started young in those days. And when Felix saw her married to someone else and he saw how beautiful this woman was, he desired her. Now there is a story, I don't know that we can verify it, that a magician called Simon Magus, who is mentioned, I believe, in the book of Acts. We've seen him earlier in the book of Acts, maybe around chapter 8 or something like that. Uh, wooed Drusilla away to Felix. So when Paul meets Felix and Drusilla, they are both living in what? Sin. Do we believe that anymore? You know what? You'll never embrace Jesus as you should unless you really understand the depths of sin in your own life. Now, gentlemen, it's one thing to be attracted to beauty. And actually, if you go through the Scriptures, the Bible does talk quite a bit about beauty. I bet you never heard a sermon on beauty. But it's there. It's in the Bible. Do you think Eve was the most hideous person ever created on planet Earth? She was drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, Adam had no interest in, in those other animals when he saw Eve. Wow, this is a helpmate. This is the one. Boy, we're going to be together, right? But sin is such, and the problem is always sin can blame Satan, we can blame circumstances, but it's sin in the human heart that's the problem. And that was a problem for Felix in not just saying, wow, she's, she's gorgeous, but taking her from another person who she's married to. That is horrible sin. And in our society, we don't recognize it that way, right? Let's make sure that society doesn't shape the church. When church, Christians should be shaping society. And we have to understand that sin is not just externally what we do, but it's desiring the forbidden fruit. And that's why we need the righteousness of Christ so much, because of sin in the human heart. So ladies, you can listen now. Listen up. So Felix and Drusilla, Drusilla is a Jewess. She understands about the law. That's her heritage. She will probably know quite a bit about Christianity, and the text says that Felix knows something too. 
So he sent to Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Now here, I can see Paul getting excited because God has created this man to share the gospel, right? And now he has an opportunity to do it personally, one-on-one or one-on-two. So I'm sure he's really, really happy for this opportunity. And what does he talk about? Well, the text first says, faith in who? Christ Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we talking about when we faith? We're probably talking about Christianity. We're probably talking about not just putting your trust immediately in Jesus at this point, but explaining the significance of who Jesus is. I can see Paul, for example, explaining how he fulfilled Scripture. Remember, there's only one Bible at this point in time, and it's the Old Testament. No New Testament probably written at this point in time. That would come later. So how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. And did he do that? Yes, he did. Also, as, Jesus, as he's talking about this Jesus and the fulfillment of Scripture, Paul is talking about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Now, there's different ways of understanding this. Righteousness can also mean justice. So righteousness and justice, think of them as interchangeable terms here. So one commentator puts it this way. Most commentators relate righteousness or justice to the well-known cruelty and oppression of which Felix was guilty and self-control to the unbridled lust which had drawn and united him to Drusilla while judgment to come would be the inevitable penalty for their injustice and immorality. And this commentator says, and this may be correct. I mean, it seems to fit, don't you think so? If you know anything about the life of Felix and how corrupt he was, it seems to fit very well. But then he says, but it seems to me to be possible that this dikaiosone, the Greek word for righteousness, of which Paul spoke, was precisely that righteousness from God or that divine act of justification which he had elaborated in his letter to the Romans. In this case, if this is the way we should look at this phrase, these phrases, in this case, the three topics of conversation were what are sometimes called the three tenses of salvation, namely how to be justified or pronounced righteous by God, how to overcome temptation and gain self-mastery, and how to escape the awful final judgment of God. Whichever way it is, and I'm not sure if you can see the distinctions here, the facts are this, that Felix was a man that was up to his neck in sin, and so are you and I. The whole human race is, is guilty on that charge, right? Paul argues that so clearly in the book of Romans, that's why that is such an important book. When he talks about the Gentiles sinning, the Jews says, yes, Paul, right on. But then, a little bit later, but what about us? 
What about us who sit in judgment about these people? Are we not guilty as well? Yes, we are as guilty as well. All of us have sinned. All of us continue to fall short of the glory of God. And when a man or a woman, Felix and Drusilla, or anybody in this room this morning, really understands that, that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God, no matter how much religion, fasting, vows, oaths, penances, it matters not. Not a one of us can even get to first base. Our righteousness is what kind of rags? Filthy, filthy, always filthy rags. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we're not talking about when a person is converted and the Holy Spirit's working in their life and they do things, works that are pleasing. We're not talking about that. That is pleasing to God, but it's never your ticket into the kingdom, right? Most of us in this room probably understand that. I hope we do. I hope we can see why, why Paul made such a big deal about this righteousness of God. You see, God is supremely righteous, right? God is supremely just. God can never lower the standards for anybody. He can't say, hey, here's Uriel over here. He's trying really hard. Let's give him a break. God can't do that. The standard is perfection, right? Standard, let's be clear what the law, the law is not saying love the Lord your God when you feel like it. It's saying love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, 24-7, never ever sinning even in thought, word, and certainly deed. So it's very clear when it's explained that way that what the law demands we cannot produce. But Jesus can. Jesus is the only human being ever born of woman that does meet the demands in every respect of ceremonial law, moral law, civil law, any law, anything that's out there that God requires of man, Jesus did it. How do we know? What did God do? Raised him from the dead. The fact that Jesus died on a cross doesn't prove it. Lots of people died on crosses in the first century. But they, they were not raised from the dead by Almighty God, where God puts his stamp of approval upon the sacrifice and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we trust in Jesus, lots of things kick in. God declares us righteous. God places His Holy Spirit in us so that we can do acts of righteousness and please God in some way, shape, or form. No longer do we live for self and for sin and for Satan we're brought out of that kingdom and we're brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God the Father sees us only in Christ. Only in Christ. Well, I don't know how much Felix understood about what Paul uh, said here, but the text says that he did what? How did Felix 
respond. Verse 25, as Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and judgment come, Felix was afraid. Is that a good or bad? I don't hear you. It's good. It's very, very good. Conscience is working. Something's working up there. This man is, is, is getting, Paul is getting his attention. He realizes it's, the gospel has been explained, probably tailor-made for Drusilla and Felix. It's been explained in a way that he knows, he knows he can't produce this stuff himself. Of course, he doesn't have the inclination to either, but he can't do it. So he's afraid that's a good thing. The conscience is working, but this is where it gets bad. That's enough for now. Do you remember when we saw the Philippian jailer in the book of Acts? Think of that story and then think of this story here. What a contrast between that jailer and he was a pagan just as, as much as Felix was, but the different responses that we see. Leave me alone or leave for now, you may leave. That's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. When I first became a Christian and started understanding some of these things, I would share Jesus with just anyone that would listen, and even those that wouldn't listen. And you know what I heard over and over again? When I'm old, because I was, not, I was 20 years of age at the time, so m those are the people that I knew. When I'm old, I'll think about this stuff. Well, here I am surrounded by a lot of elderly people, and what do I hear? I'm too old now. Everyone's looking for a convenient season. And you know what that is? Now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. If a person turns, if a person delays with Jesus Christ, postpones with Jesus Christ, procrastinates with Jesus Christ, they are bringing judgment on themselves. Judgment day is there in the decision-making process. Read the Gospel of John if you don't understand that. Future judgment, yes, but he brings it into the present. If you turn your back on Jesus Christ, like that rich young ruler, you bring negative judgment on yourself. Well, pastor, don't people get opportunities? Yes, they do. That's the grace and mercy of God. But no one knows how many opportunities. Listen to this way of sharing that. This is from uh, the book Acts of the Apostles. Can I have five more minutes? 20? Do I hear 25? Do I hear 30? Listen to some of this, I'm, and I'll jump around a little bit, but I think it's quite solemn the way it, and very well expressed. It was not long after this that Felix and his wife Drusilla sent for Paul in order that in a private interview they might hear from him concerning the faith in Christ. So Felix wanted this. It kind of puts a different slant on it, perhaps. They were willing, even eager, to listen to these new truths, truths which, might, which they might ne never hear again. 
and which, if rejected, would prove a swift witness against them in the day of God. Paul regarded this as a God-given opportunity, and he faithfully uh, improved it. He knew that he stood in the presence of one who had power to put him to death or to set him free, and yet he did not address Felix and Drusilla with praise or flattery. He knew that his words would be to them a savor of life or death. And forgetting all selfish considerations, he sought to arouse them to a sense of their peril. The apostle realized that the gospel had a claim upon whoever might listen to his words, that one day they would stand either among the pure and holy around the great white throne or with those to whom Christ would say, depart from me, you that work iniquity. He knew that he must meet every one of his hearers before the tribunal of heaven and must there render an account not only for all that he had said and done, but for the motive and the spirit of his words and deeds. So violent and cruel had been the course of Felix that few had ever even dared to intimate to him that his character and conduct were not faultless. This might be the very first time in his life that he was ever truly convicted of sin. He held up before Felix and Drusilla the character of God. Think about how you witness. Learn how Paul witnessed. See if we cannot hit the nail on the head here. The character of God, his righteousness, justice, equity, and the nature of his law. He clearly showed that it is man's duty to live a life of sobriety and temperance, keeping the passions under the control of reason in conformity to God's law. And if you can do that, and if you can have that self-control, you do not take someone else's wife. And if you're really growing in Christ, God will get you to the point where you don't even desire that woman either. Do you believe that? That's holiness. That's how holiness works. Externally, internally. And preserving the physical and mental powers in a healthy condition, he declared that there would surely come a day of judgment when all would be rewarded according to the deeds done in the body and when it would be plainly revealed that wealth, position, titles are powerless to gain for man the favor of God or to deliver him from the results of sin. He showed that this life is man's time of preparation for the future life. Should he neglect present privileges and opportunities, he would suffer an eternal loss. No new probation would be given him. She goes on to talk about the far-reaching claims of the law of God. This is one big lesson we need to learn in witnessing folks. We have to do what the Puritans called the law work. We have to show what the law of God is. People do not know. Even Christians do not know what the law of God is. We have to show how this law is not interested in just external behavior, but internal responses too. So she goes on to speak about the thoughts, the motives, and the purposes. And of course, with Felix, you have somebody whose, whose thoughts and motives and purposes were rotten to the core. 
Paul endeavored to direct their minds to the sacrifice for sin, the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and the, on the cross. The Jewish princess Drusilla well understood the sacred character of that law, which she had so shamelessly transgressed, but her prejudice against the man of Calvary steeled her heart against the word of life. So she had pretty much made her mind up that she's not buying into this Jesus thing, right? But listen about Felix. But Felix had never before listened to the truth. And I tell you folks, there's multi-millions of people out there who have never really heard it. They've never heard it. They've never, they've never, the gospel has never been presented clearly to them. They've never caught it. They've never really understood. That's your responsibility and mine. And as the Spirit of God sent conviction to Felix's soul, he became agitated. Conscience was aroused. It made its voice heard, and Felix felt that Paul's words were true. Amen for that? Memory went back over the guilty past. With terrible distinctness, there came up before him the secrets of his earthly life of profli profligacy, bloodshed, and the black record of his later years. He saw himself licentious, cruel, rapacious. Never before had the truth been thus brought home to his heart. Never before had his soul been so filled with terror the thought that all the secrets of his career of crime were opened before the eye of Almighty God and that he must be judged according to his deeds caused him to tremble with dread. Thank God he was convicted. But here's the bummer. But instead of permitting his convictions to lead him to repentance, he sought to dismiss these unwelcome reflections. The interview with Paul was cut short, go thy way, and in a convenient season I'll call for thee. For two years, no further action was taken against Paul. The guy was innocent, and yet he remained a prisoner. Felix visited him several times, listened attentively to his words, but his motivation was mixed. His real motive, she says, for this apparent friendliness was a desire for gain, and he intimated to Paul that by a payment of a large sum of money, Paul might secure his release. So he must have thought that Paul was wealthy or had access to wealth. Remember, Paul had brought this huge offering to Jerusalem. The Christians could probably raise a lot of funds for him, to set him free, but Paul wasn't going to go down that road. Then she goes on to say a few years later, Felix is out of his position and Festus takes over. And here's the closing paragraph that I want to close on. A ray of light from heaven had been permitted to shine upon Felix when Paul reasoned with him concerning righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. That was his heaven-sent opportunity to see and to forsake sin. But he said to the measure of God, go thy way. In a more convenient time, I will call for thee. He had slighted his last offer of mercy. Never was he to receive another call from God. Pretty solemn, don't you think?
It is a solemn thing to fall into the hands of Almighty God. Hence, we turn to Jesus. All the judgment of God fell on Jesus on Calvary. So it doesn't fall on you, and so it doesn't fall on me. Felix did not need to die in his sins, right? He had an opportunity to flee, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, whiter than snow, would have covered him. But he chose to not do that. How is it with us today? Do we realize the depths of sin in our lives? Because it's only those who realize that who truly turn to Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't talk about Jesus as a good man, though he was a good man. It talks of him as the Savior from sin. Let's make sure that everyone, every man and woman, every boy and girl in this room is turning right now to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be blessed with some music at this time, and then we will have the benediction. It is always uh, good to get an invitation. And uh, this spring, we got an invitation to a wedding. It, was, uh, it is Laura and Nicholas, my nephew, that is getting married next Sabbath. But we have good news to all of us. We are all invited to the great wedding in heaven. And uh, the song we are going to sing is in Norwegian. But uh, the message is, you are all invited to heaven. And when you get that invitation, please make sure that we are all taking and say yes to that invitation. And that is something we can do every day. We have also translated the version, so we have the, the gospel in here, right? Færdig i himlen det venter, hø 
Before we pray, I want to thank Jasmine and all our musicians here this morning, the Vic family. And um, I think it's all kind of come together under the Spirit of God so that we can all draw closer to Him. The invitation through the song and through the sermon is to make sure that Jesus is number one in your life. To don't procrastinate, don't delay. Now, at the appointed time, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your love. We thank you for the beauty of music and worship and especially your holy word, which can be like an arrow just shooting straight into our hearts and either bring in judgment against sin or bring in grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for every person in this room, Lord, some are carrying really heavy burdens. Satan is attacking them and accusing them. And Lord, sometimes we're foolish enough to even listen to that. Help us to resist the devil so he will flee. And we can only resist the devil with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we, we are your sons and we are your daughters and we are your children. May Jesus come back soon and gather us all together in him is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.